Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. If you can learn a tool that's going to help you become more self-aware and manage your emotions more effectively, that's going to transform your family life, your work life, your relationships. You know, if you can become master of your own mind and your own emotions, that's going to transform your life. And that's really what mindfulness is about. That is Dr. Elise Baillieu. And this is episode 226 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. Ginsburg, welcome to the show. This is episode 226 of the show with Dr. Elise Baillieu. Uh, if you're new, g'day. I'm Osha Ginsburg. You may have seen me on the telly every now and again. I'm, my wife sent me a photo of me on a billboard the other day. I haven't been on a billboard since about 2006. It's exciting times, I'm telling you. Exciting times. Uh, if you're new, this is a podcast that I do every single week, have done for the last 225 weeks in a row, and each week I have an authentic conversation that you get to be a part of with someone that you may know or may not know, but each week, I guarantee, I guarantee that while you're listening, you'll maybe cock your head to one side while you're doing whatever it is you're doing on a plane, on a train, in a car, hanging out with your kids, going for a run, on the bike, doing gardening, Lots of gardening podsies this week. Someone was listening in Kathmandu. Sent me a photo of a hotel. The hotel is called Osho. He's a somewhat of a guru, spiritual guide. Um, I'm not him. I'm the other guy with the roses. Uh, but yeah, whatever you're doing while you're listening, um, you'll cock your head to one side and go, "Oh, I didn't. I never thought about that like that. Hmm, that's interesting." Because that's what we're about. About having conversations that help us kind of look at the world a little differently, shift a paradigm, and maybe, just maybe, help us live a little better today than we did yesterday. Today's show is with Dr. Elise Baillieu, founder of Mindful in May. You can find out all about her and the work that she does, mindfulinmay.org. 
It's no mistake that Dr. Bailey is on the show today. As you know, if you've been listening, I've been trying to work a mindfulness-based meditation practice into my day as a way to help me deal with life now that I'm living life off of meds. It is certainly not enough in itself. I have to point that out. But it is one of the things that I use to help help my brain kind of work things out. Um, and it, it does help. Um, I wanted to get Dr. Ballew on to maybe help you understand a bit more about why, mindful, why mindfulness works and the science behind it. I'm particularly a fan of the fact that uh, she is a doctor and you'll listen through the show. Um, she's very careful to point out uh, references and um, not make sweeping hope, claims in hyperbole. And she's, she's very aware of uh, any kind of claims. And I'm, I'm really grateful for that because I should state my position quite clearly here. I have, hand, hand, hand or heart, I've done my time with people who call themselves healers. I've shown up to a granny flat out the back of a house near Byron Bay, made my way through the wind chimes, sitting down in a cane chair to have someone lay hands on me while I inhale plumes of patchouli and I hope that it might make me feel better. I've done all that. I've, I've done it. It may have been okay for me in the past, but now that I've gone through what I've gone through, now that I've had the experience of having gone through psychosis, of having my ability to perceive reality correctly just dissolve into a shimmering mess around me, nowadays I, I just I find it a little more difficult to just go with blind faith and placebo. Um, it might have worked for me in the past, but now for the most part, I kind of need to know that what I'm doing is backed up by research. Um, and that's just me. But that's just me. And for me, mindfulness meditation has enough scientific clout behind it to warrant me using it as one of the tools that I have when it comes to living with the brain that I've got. Now, it's important to tell you that for a long time, I wasn't well enough for this meditation to help or to even come close to working. Um, my brain was not as healthy as it is now for a very long time. It was only after being on meds for years that my brain healed enough so that now I'm able to start to train my brain to use these techniques. And it is hard work. As you know, uh, Dr. Elise Ballew uh, says, it's not unlike training a puppy, but I am making progress. Now, it's important to know that when I was really sick, meditation didn't make things better for me. In fact, they made things worse because then I'd be kind of trapped in this rumination spiral in a state of consciousness that I deliberately put myself into. It was not okay. It was not okay. So let me underline that. Don't just listen to this podcast, then stop taking your meds, download an app and think you'll be sweet. You won't. <laughs> okay. Uh, everything that I do tell you about um, when I do check in at the start of each each show Everything that I do tell you about is something that I've talked with my doctors about first, and that's what I must insist on. I am no better at treating my own mental health as I am at fixing mechanical fault with my car. I know fuck all about both. I know nothing about psychology or psychiatry, so I leave those decisions to the people who have studied and practiced both for years. Um, because like I've said before, trying to make a decision about how you're thinking, using the thinking that you're thinking with, is a little like trying to bite your own teeth. You've got to listen to other people, people who are smarter than you, people who know how to deal with these things, people who have dealt with these things before, and just trust that their decisions just might be better than your decisions. Because ultimately, and certainly in my case, the decisions I was making, I was making with a brain that wasn't very good at making decisions, so therefore they were shitty decisions. Does that make sense? That's a bit of a tangent. Anyway, I hope we're clear. 
Well, good. All right. If you want to find out more about Dr. Elise Ballew and the work that she's doing, mindfulinmay.org is the website, just mindful, I-N-M-A-Y dot O-R-G. That's it. She's a great human being. She has a great story, and she's really helping a lot of people with what she's doing. I hope you enjoy the show. Good morning, Elise. Good morning. Good morning, How are you? Nice to meet you. Oh, it's nice to see you. Thanks for joining. Thanks for joining me. Where in the world do we find you? I am in Melbourne. All oh, right. Yeah. All oh, right. Oh, well, that's that's good. Well, I'm I'm glad we can I'm glad we can speak. I know I know we're over Skype. I normally have people here to the house, but um, I'm grateful I'm grateful that you're not here today. Um, not because you're not wonderful, but because we're uh, we've just got new cupboards put in, so everything that was in the cupboards is out of the cupboards. And when we pulled everything out of the cupboards and put the new cupboards in, we realized, oh, we have to paint the walls behind the cupboards. So <laughs> so it's chaos. Wow. Yes. Yes, it is. Well, so, I'm, I'm glad you're not here either because I've moved into this place recently and uh, I'm, I'm very strategically hiding the boxes in this picture. <laughs> so if I just go like, if I go like that. Oh, yeah. Oh, I've lived like you that. Might, you might kind of feel... Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. We, we understand each other. <laughs> I've most def I've most definitely lived like that. At least I was just speaking on the show the other day how I'm going through my garage and that, and finding finding boxes that I hadn't honestly hadn't opened since I packed them to move to LA in 2009. It's fun. It's a fun experience. I, I've had some really good laughs recently going through boxes and finding old letters and, I mean, the stuff we keep. <laughs> That's the opposite of my experience because I've lived like three lifetimes since I've packed those boxes. <laughs> so, but that that's another story. Are you originally from Melbourne, Elise? I am. I was born in Melbourne, raised in Melbourne, love Melbourne, have travelled quite a bit, spent a bit of time in my 20s travelling and exploring the world. But, yeah, very much a Melbourne girl. Right. And um, what what part of Melbourne are we talking, Elise? Um, I have recently just moved to Elwood by the beach, so I'm very happy. Couldn't be happier. Oh, I always liked a suburb named after my favourite blues brother. That's, <laughs> that's, that's an old movie reference because I'm old now. You see, I used to be young, Elise, but I'm. Yeah. I'm to- I turned forty-four in three weeks. It's all it's coming at me. I'm. 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 I'm following you. I'm. I'm not far behind. Oh, piffle, oh, piffle, piffle, <laughs> piffle. So you are. Um. You. You're a qualified psychiatrist, aren't you? So let me get the semantics correct. So we oh, don't, okay. So, Hang on. So the College Hang of Psychiatry doesn't come come after me for spreading rumors. Um, so I'm actually a doctor, medical doctor. I specialized in psychiatry. And then my journey kind of took an unexpected turn uh-huh. right at the end. So I have one more year before I can call myself a psychiatrist because okay. mindfully, the rest of everything we probably talk about took me well, on a journey. Let's get to that. Let, let, yeah. let, let's get to that because I am a, look, I am a, a Big fan of psychologists and psychiatrists because I would not be sitting here today if it weren't for people who do that job. Um, there's absolutely no question about that. But it, I do find it very interesting the amount of training that does need to go into that. At what point in your life did did the medical doctor idea call you? At what point did you think, yeah, I want to go do that? My mum is, oh, well, she's semi-retired, but she was a psychologist. So I grew up in a kind of milieu where psychology, you know, lots of books on the bookshelf by 
different personal development people and meditation people. So I actually had this idea in my head that I wanted to be a psychiatrist, I think when I was like 16 or something. And I think it was very much influenced by my mum. So we'd, we'd have lots of conversations, but I, I don't think I fully appreciated the journey that it was going to take to get there. Right. And so you yeah. say, you say there was, there was people around. So uh, do you remember how old you were when your mum went, we're going to try meditating today? I was pretty young. My mum took me to conferences that she would attend. So I think sort of I must have been like 13, 14. And I remember kind of doing my first meditation with some Tibetan monks at this conference that she took me to. And it was actually a meditation on death, as which is a common thing to do in the, in the Tibetan practice. And I, you know, maybe it was because from a very young age, I've always been very obsessed with the big questions and meaning and what is this all about and what are we here for? And so when I did that meditation, I absolutely loved it. It was, it was quite profound and, um, yeah, so that that was sort of one of my earlier memories of meditating. But my mum was more introducing it to me in an intellectual way as opposed to we would sit regularly. It was it was a lot about sort of the books we were both reading and the conversations we were having. I think n- both of us were maybe avoiding the actual sitting because, you know, we're both like busy people. Um, so it took a while until I really needed it in my life, which was when I got to medical training that I realized, you know, instead of reading about meditation, I actually have to try it, actually sit down and do it because you can read about it till the cows come home, but you got to just do it. It's it, Look, a lot of people will listen to this and, and, and probably find their way if they haven't already to some kind of meditation guided app on a phone as, and it might even be their very first experience with meditation, but you went in at the tippy top. You was like, all right, I'm going to go Tibetan monks. That's it. Let's go. <laughs> Well, it was kind of an accident, you know. I mean, it really was. It was. I, I feel that I was fortunate to have this kind of influence in my life from a very young age, and I, I really do feel that from from my mum. And um, but as I said, it did take a long time between initially being introduced to actually practicing uh, on a regular basis. Uh, both my folks were medical doctors. Mum was a anaesthetist, and um, Dad's still around. He was a rheumatologist. But growing up with kind of scientific people in the house, you could never get away with a sick day, all right? No, you can't fake anything. You just have to say, I haven't done the assignment. Can I have yeah. a day off? You can't, you can't pretend. What's it like growing up with, a, with a, a mum who's so intimately in tune of like, are you sure you don't want to go to school today? Or is it those mean girls that are making you not want to go? Like, what's it like doing that? You know, look, I, I mean, it, it was actually great. And my mum's a pretty cool woman. Like I remember when, we, when I was at school, she'd actually, I didn't have to make excuses. She'd actually be like, do you want to go out for crepes this morning? As in, instead of instead of school, it was very open. There were no excuses needed. She's a pretty pretty cool mum. Sounds like it. Did she give? Did you notice that you had a little, uh, you had a little more of a stacked toolbox than some of your uh, school colleagues when it came to dealing with adversity that just would just through osmosis from your mum? Hmm. I don't know. I went through the adversity like everyone else. You know, I don't. I don't think I necessarily got away with uh, cruising through it all without the adversity as well. Um, So I'm not so sure about that, but I guess I always felt that there was someone there. Right. Right. But like not, for example, you may see, I mean, I went to a school that was all boys and we were, you know, essentially like a pack of wolves. Uh, And you would see guys act out in anger quite a bit. 
um, you know, because you're a bunch of 14-year-old boys all rammed together in one small space in the middle of the city. Um, were you able to observe that kind of behaviour and go, huh, oh, that might have been what me and mum were talking about the other day? <laughs> or did, were you just like, oh, there's two idiots fighting? I don't know. I, to be honest, I don't really, I don't recall sort of those kind of thoughts. Maybe I just, I don't know, didn't didn't see a lot of that. But it was more that if I was having, you know, if I ever came home and there was a rough day, I just felt like there was someone there to listen and she was usually pretty good at giving me advice on, on how to how to handle it. Well, she's pro strength. I mean it's, it's yeah, good, yeah. hopefully as yeah. good as you're gonna get. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, was there much expectation for you to follow in the in that kind of academic path or was it just something that you were like, Okay, this is this is what I wanna do, regardless of what my folks want me to do? Yeah, I think it's probably relevant to say that I am a third generation sort of post-war immigrant kind of you've got that story and so all my grandparents came from Poland post-war so I think in you know I never realized the significance of that till later on in life but I think with that comes this cellular sense of you need to you need to do something in the world that's going to give you security and safety Uh, so I think that that definitely had an impact on my awareness of what my choices were, so and and sort of choosing a profession. All right, so it was your mum's parents that came out. Both, all all four, all four of my grandparents. Yeah. All four of your grand. Okay, so I'm I'm one before you. Uh huh. By that is that my mum came. Oh uh, right. With her parents, but my mum came yeah. with her parents. Oh sorry, my mum was also born outside of Australia, so my mum was on a boat and arrived here with her oh, parents as well. Okay. So same. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, there was a lot of it. A lot of it going on. There yeah, lot, but it's a, it's an. I think it's it's a story that does impact your trajectory without necessarily understanding the impact of that. I think yeah. until later in life. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know if it was. And you know, I don't know if it affected your family, but I think when my family came in 1949, I think we was we're just at the tail end of white Australia policy. So because they were from Lithuania. It's pretty, yeah, you're fine. <laughs> you, know, you, you look the part. Doesn't matter that you can only speak German because you've been living in refugee camps. That's fine. We'll figure that part out. But you look okay. You know, so I don't know. You know, it's, it's interesting though, but, you know, we're both talking about people that came on boats and and now that's like, we can't talk about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Where, it's, you know, I'm sure your your grandparents and your parents and, and you, you've, you, obviously, um. I've all contributed so much to this society, you know, the, the, but sorry, I have taken us on a tangent. No, no, that's fine. I mean, I feel pretty passionate about that as well. And I yeah. think, yeah, I, I mean, I just think that that's right. Like look at the richness and the diversity and the contribution that comes from, from um, these stories. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. 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 It, it, and, and it's interesting you, you mentioned that because I'm one of, I'm one of four boys and uh, I think all, all of us have, that kind of, as you mentioned, this this kind of drive within us to that, that we I don't know if we got it from our parents or, or or something like that or you know that it's like you just whatever you're gonna do just go hard you can't just yeah. sit around you can't just sit around and take checks off the government you gotta go <laughs> yeah it's really interesting isn't it it's a really interesting phenomenon and I have friends you know with similar stories and all of them are the same it's this kind of intense need to live life to the to the maximum and and also I think maybe when you've got in your story in in essence like a form of trauma whether it was you know through the war and and the way that that's transmitted intergenerationally 
I think that there is also something that comes through about social responsibility and recognising that, you know, that, that it's up to us to actually contribute and, and look after each other as humans. I think I think you're absolutely right. And I, I, it was it was that feeling, certainly, I know when I was, I was 19 and uh, I'm older than you, so I was nine, 18, 19, 1992, 1993, massive recession, no jobs anywhere, unemployment in Queensland was like at 15% or something. And I ended up on the dole and I, it was the worst thing in the world. <laughs> you know, because as far as I was concerned, it was like, this is terrible. And I turn on the current affairs show and then there'd be guys surfing going, no, nah, it's unreal, man. I get paid from the government to go surfing every day. It's like, oh, I couldn't. Nothing would abhor me to my core more than doing such a thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just, I, just find it, I just find it interesting that, you know, where where did that come from? You know, where did that, that drive come from? But we digress. Uh, so... It's, it's, it's funny, actually, that dr- when you were saying that, made me think, you know, it's, it's also that drive that needed neutralizing in my life, which is probably what led me to meditation as a kind of balancing to that drive and that I, activeness. You go a little hard out, do you? Yeah, I mean, I, I really, I do. I mean, my partner laughs, you know, the joke in our relationship was always like, he just, he says, I just wish you just, I could just sit you on the couch and we could just watch some TV. You know, I just, and the only time I was really like sitting and relaxing on the couch was when I was pregnant with my daughter and it was first trimester and I was floored. And he's, he just was in shock thinking, I've never seen you like this, you know. (laughs) So being a, you know, what's it, what's it like when you, when you finally get into med school, you know, do you give yourself a high five? What do you do? Do. No, it's to be honest, it feels like such a long time ago. It is. It's like twenty years ago. I, I mean, the memories that come up are really the the sort of outstanding ones for me, like being in a in an anatomy room with all those cadavers and feeling like I was in a Michael Jackson thriller film clip with all these sort of feet and like white sheets hanging over. And um, actually, yeah, our first anatomy dissection, like running in there and having to get some gloves. And then I walked in and then the doors slammed behind me and I was the only person in this room with like 50 cadavers. And I had thought like, oh, my God, the door is just locked behind me. I'm terrified. And so <laughs> like things like that. So I don't know. For me, it was more the fascination. It was the it was such a new world to be yeah. in. It was such a new world from from school, you know. So it was yeah. more. Not so much the high five was like, wow, where am I? You know, chutes of, you know, pulling like bones out of buckets. I mean, it was, you know, it was pretty, pretty wild. Well, that, you know, that's, and every medical student has those stories. Every medical Mm. student, because you've got to do it. You've got to do the dissection. You've got to learn about the human body. At at what point, though, in your university career did the overwhelm start to kick in and you go, well, I'm going to need to find a way to deal with this? Yeah, it was like it was in the actual getting out there. So you do your training in university. It was really when I started to be in contact with patients and really meeting the real world. I was 19 and, you know, you just get thrown in the deep end and you're dealing with acute emergencies and, you know, giving people bad news, like terminal diagnoses, news. um, And At 19? At 19? Pretty much. Yeah, I mean, like in – Probably at that point, I wasn't the one on my own doing that. Like I would have been there with a colleague. But for example, my first job as a doctor was on a palliative care ward and that was with basically people dying. So I would go to work and every single person on that ward was dying from some horrible end of, you know, end of illness process. And um, that was just, I mean, it was probably one of the most rewarding jobs I did, but it was also extremely distressing. And so 
I just recognized, and also again, coming back to my mom, she was like, you, you need to kind of develop tools to make sure that you can be present to this and not get sort of taken down. Cause it's, it's, it's such a, it's a, I think if you're someone that's open, which I am, uh, to be in the face of such human suffering is really, it's, it's pretty bloody challenging. What was the, what was the moment? What was the day where you went, ah, oh, something's got to change? Oh, I, I think it was it was really it was cumulative, but it was actually um, that I started to hear about the science of mindfulness, and because I was studying medicine, I was going to various conferences, and it was really attending a conference where I heard uh, Richie Davidson, who's one of the leading researchers in this space of mindfulness in the brain, and Michael Merzenich, who's another top neuroscientist, um, talking about number one neuroplasticity which was quite new at that point so this is the early 2000s so that the capacity of of the brain to change itself throughout the lifetime and number two the way that regular mindfulness could actually transform the brain and and other parts of the body and counteract the effect of stress so it was this combination of my own need and then my discovery of some of the science that came together that made me sort of think oh, this is a path I need to explore more. And I'd already been primed from early on in life with yeah. that knowledge that meditation could be something that would be really helpful. I guess, you know, as as a doctor, um, as someone who's training to be a doctor, my, my father was once famously asked uh, by someone I know uh, who had someone close to them studying homeopathy. Um, and I said, oh, you know, what about this and what about that and what about, you know, you know the essence of this root mixed in with a tincture of that? And my dad famously said, oh, we have a name for things like that that work. We call it medicine. Um, <laughs> so, because, uh, you know, he, cause he approached everything with a very critical, a very, very critical scientific outlook. And so, once, once you've been, uh, as you mentioned the word primed, once you've been, I guess, taught, early on in the in the medical student process of like here's how to assess research here's how to assess you know and if a research comes tomorrow that says that this drug or this treatment plan is no longer the best thing ever we change our minds as quickly as we turn a page all right so approaching mindfulness meditation and approaching meditation there must have been some skepticism within you uh, about it yeah i mean i well, to be honest, I'd sort of started practicing and I was finding benefits, but it was always that thing of I'm having trouble sticking with this. And so then the science was what tipped me into diving deeper and sort of taking myself off to long-term meditation retreats to really investigate it for myself because I knew that, okay, I might fall off track. This might not feel good all the time, but I know this is actually going to profoundly transform many aspects of my being so so in terms of the skepticism and and actually yeah I guess when I was learning some of the science I was a bit skeptical and I was a bit careful you know is this really because 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 in medical school I'd learned that the science changed in my in my path so I had learned in medical school that you know if that we grow up we have brains that are very neuroplastic and adaptive until we're about in our 20s and then it's kind of the end and then all of a sudden these scientists were telling me something that was different to what I'd learned in medical school so the science had changed so I was a little bit not maybe not skeptical but more trying to get my head around this new science and um I did you know then take these journal articles back to my hospital and start sharing some of this stuff about meditation and I think I definitely was considered the strange one, like 
I was considered the soft one that was kind of not really so into the drugs, like, and this was more in the psychiatry domain, um, and it was all a bit fluffy. And, you know, and admittedly I was exploring and there were probably times that I was stuffing up. Like I, I would bring – I was interested to know could meditation work in an acute psychiatric setting when people are like psychotic and suicidal – and I discovered that no, like that's not the place necessarily for it, you know. And so, so I was sort of exploring and yeah, trying to trying to make sense of it myself. Yeah, it is, uh, and I, you know, I know this certainly from my own experience. Um, I, I won't say I won't go into too much detail, um, but it, it was as actually was through meditation while I was going through psychosis that I recognised. I was going through psychosis. I was lucky enough that I'd learned enough of the observation of the thoughts to go, oh, wow, every single thought I'm having is just doom and disaster and gloom and horror and ah, every piece of stimulus, the smells, the sounds, the taste, everything in this room is terrifying me. That's weird. <laughs> but it was only well, through meditation I mean, that that's I found that. Pretty, that's pretty impressive, I have to say, and it's also like – I think depending on the severity of someone's psychosis, like there would be, there would be um, situations where people just would not be able to do that, like mm. just flat, you know. So you were lucky that you could do that. I was really lucky. I, I, my um, uh, one of my mentors actually, he said to me the, <laughs> the classic line. He goes, "The problem with crazy people is they don't know they're crazy." <laughs> he said, "So you're really lucky, pal." I yeah, was. well, that is true. I mean, it's like that's a that's an indicator of severity of illness when you've lost insight and you don't yeah. even you don't recognize that something is yeah. wrong. And that's kind of the space that I was working in for a long time, really, with like very severe situations. Yeah, and it sounds like you were right at the you know as you are with a student, yeah. you're, you're going to yeah. want to be ex exposed to the the acute kind of areas of complex mental illness to be able to see. Okay, this is. This is what it can get to, um, yeah. and, and here's how treatment can help a person who's in that situation. And, yeah, and, and yeah. So for people that, and I'm sure a lot of people listening uh, have already tried meditation, and you know, uh, you know, you said you struggled yourself to sit. What's a way that you can describe, I guess, some of the science behind what interested you in it? What was the science that made you made you go, you know, what I want some of that? Yeah, great question. So I think, as I said, for me at this conference, hearing Richie Davidson talk about his research and specifically around, well, I'll just, yeah, I'll share. I mean, there's so much research. There's about a thousand studies a year coming out wow. on this. Yeah. So it's, a, and it's, and it's increasing exponentially. So it's a really rapidly growing field. But just to pull some highlights that really grabbed my attention, I would say, you know, Richie Davidson actually a couple of years ago did some seminal research which showed that actually one day of one day of intensive mindfulness meditation was actually enough to change the genetic expression of um, inflammatory proteins in the body. And so inflammatory proteins are like what contributes to chronic illnesses of various sorts. So it was one day, it was about six to eight hours of meditation. Now that was sort of sitting, walking, sitting, walking. So admittedly, most people may not go and do a full day of meditation. That might seem like extreme for people. But the fact that they showed that that practice could turn, turn down the genetic expression of quite a harmful protein in the body blew my mind. Okay. So like, at a, at a, like <laughs> to a point where it was like therapeutically significant? 
Well, they were, they were doing blood tests. So they could see these proteins were reduced. But, you know, they get, did blood tests at the beginning of the day, at the end of the day. So in terms of clinically significant, uh, I'm not sure, you know, I can't really speak to that in terms of would this be impacting if someone if someone was had some kind of illness? Would it be? I don't think it was to that level. Yeah. But the point is that it was um, revealing and opening a window that expands our understanding of how potentially powerful a practice that is that we where we use our mind can actually be translated into into bodily transformation, and that's really through the fact that meditation is um, helping settle the nervous system and 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 reducing this chronic fight-or-flight response that most yeah. of us live in, um, which was not designed to be activated chronically. So if we can – so the, the somehow the practice uh, reduce, yeah, calms nervous system, reduces this stress response, and this has profoundly beneficial effects on the entire body. So that was one piece of research. <laughs> yeah. And then another piece that was done by Sarah Lazar, a, a neuroscientist from Harvard – um, looked at people who were practicing, for, they went into a two-month mindfulness program, which admittedly I think was committing to about 30 minutes of meditation a day. And they had brain scans before and after, and they found that there was a correlation with brain changes, which were that the amygdala, which is the stress center of the brain, actually was reduced in volume um, over that two months. And so the implication there is that, that you know, what we use, like when we're stressed a lot, the amygdala is going to get a lot of activity and it sort of grows and then it gets better at being stressed. So the reduction in the amygdala volume was associated with also a subjective feeling of less stress. So, and, and it just shows that there, like when the brain changes in that way, it suggests that that's an indication of enduring change. And another piece in her research was the hippocampus, which is the area of the brain related to memory and learning. Um, which actually gets a real hit when we're chronically stressed. It, it, it shrivels and we get not as when we become more unable to retain things and learn. Um, that part of the brain actually grew in volume. So, in other words, like the meditation practice was somehow almost countering, like opposing the effects that stress, chronic stress, has on the brain. See, I, I, I just love the way you describe that. I. Um... And it's because of the way I was brought up, you know. I and I'm someone who got taken to a meditation class at the Krishna's when I was about eight or something. All right, yeah. um, but listening to the way you describe the scientific basis behind what people have been doing for thousands of years mm. is it. I, I I really feel it's it's got you know it's got the power in it to to really change the mind of of hopefully anyone. <laughs> Who might yeah. be cynical uh, about this? And the idea that um, anyone listening will know that, and I, only from my experience, if I've been stressed out for a couple of days, then I know like it's day four and I'm waking up early and I'm freaking out. A cold sore is coming. It is coming and I know it's going to happen. You know, I'm getting rashes. I'm, you know, my hips hurt. My arthritis is playing up. All that stuff. The idea that, like, all that stuff is happening in my mind, and these bodily re physical responses are, are are being triggered by what's happening in my mind. The idea mm. that I can counteract that and hopefully try to alleviate it, negate it, perhaps cancel it out, is bloody exciting. <laughs> yeah, it really is. I mean, it's so exciting, and that's why my whole career path, you know, took me on this pull because yeah. I, I just, 
I feel like this is so exciting. And the fact that we're living in a day and age where, you know, as you know, like exponential technology demands, people are more and more fragmented. That's causing more and more stress. The World Health Organization is saying that depression, which they predicted in 2020 would be the second leading global, um, leading cause of. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Global burden of disease is actually now, currently, the leading global burden of disease, depression, according to the World Health Organization. So we are in, I mean, we're, we're in an emergency and, and, to make sure that we're going to manage deal, living in this world in the future, we need to, as I say, we need to upgrade our inner technology, our brain, to keep up with all the demands in our external world. We're doing it with our, with our iPhones and our apps, but we actually need to do it internally. Yeah. Now, now so tell me, uh, tell me a little bit about, you know, how, how could you, if someone is like, I tried meditation, but I couldn't stop thinking about what I had to buy at the store that day, or I yeah. couldn't stop thinking about what someone said to me earlier, or so the, the guy that tried to pick me up last night, or I wish I'd said that. Like, is there an analogy, an analogy that you can give about, you know, how mindfulness meditation um, can be to you the same way that something else can be to you? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that physical exercise is really a very powerful metaphor because, well, in a number of ways. So we all just know and we accept the fact that if we want to be energetic and physically fit, we've got to go to the gym, we have to train. And, you know, when you're unfit and you go on that journey, it feels like crap and you get to the gym and it is you just don't want to be there and you're just grueling through it. And then you keep doing it and then finally you start to feel really buoyant, energetic, and then you can't imagine not doing physical exercise. It's just a part of your life. The same thing with meditation. I think when people start to do this, the general, I think the more common experience is that when you're doing it for more extended periods of time, it's very agitating. You get restless because you're actually, it's a detox process from the hyperstimulation that we're bombarded by. And so you just have to know that like physical exercise, if you stick with it and push through that initial resistance, then it's going to start to feel really good to the point that you'll reach a point where it's like, I, I mean, I can't go back because I know what it feels like to have a mind that is calm, focused, clear. And so you might fall off track a couple of times here and there when you're really busy, but it's an integrated knowing. It's a deep knowing that this is, feels good and this is good. I've got, I've got to get back on track. Um, and, and also you've mentioned about people that sit to meditate and then they have thoughts and they're thinking about their shopping or they're worrying and they're su- they feel like they're such bad meditators. I would also bring the analogy of physical exercise into that and say that 
just like when you're trying to build muscle at the gym, you need like a weight, you need a resistance to push against to actually grow that muscle. Um, with mindfulness, you're, as you're building the muscle for greater focus, it's actually the distraction in your mind that is like the weight. So I call it like the mental dumbbell lift. So it's really great because when you're meditating and you're sitting there and for those, I'm sure many of your audience do meditate, but for those who might not have, you know, you're, you're concentrating on the breath and then your mind's wandering off. When your mind goes off, instead of like getting really critical and frustrated, you look at it as an opportunity to rewire the brain. So it's like, right, here's a mental dumbbell lift right here and you let go and you redirect your attention back. So that move is actually what the training's about. So it's not about trying to stop your thoughts because you'll never be able to do that. It's actually about training your mind to bring your attention back to where you're choosing it to be. And in that process, you're rewiring prefrontal cortex towards greater focus and also greater emotional regulation. That is such a fantastic, fantastic fantastic way to describe it i think the common misconception is that meditation is hours past and i didn't know because my brain was like a still forest pool and i was having no thoughts at all and but what you're describing doesn't sound like that at all what you're describing is that's not meditation meditation is the exercise of bringing the thought the un willing thought to a willing thought to bring the wandering to the to the uh to the deliberate Mm. Does that sound mm, right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a really helpful metaphor. I didn't create it. Uh, it was through um, Jack Cornfield, who's a wonderful teacher. Um, he talks about training the puppy, and I love that metaphor. So it's like when you're sitting with your mind, it's like you've got a young, bouncy puppy going all over the place, and each time the mind and the, the thoughts wander off, you gently bring back that puppy and it's like stay, but you don't do it with like a brutality and a self-criticism. Like you do it how you would relate to the puppy with gentleness and patience. So you're constantly bringing it back. So you've found, you've found this thing. It's starting to make you feel good. And I'm guessing full of youthful exuberance and abundant joy. Like I have to tell everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have been criticized for being a bit of an evangelist, uh, but um, no, I think, you know, I was in psychiatry and for a while there I was feeling, and I write about this in the book, The Happiness Plan, that I was starting to feel that I was just not on the right path. I knew I wanted to make a difference. I knew I wanted to kind of be in the world of the brain and the mind, but I somehow felt that I wasn't learning enough about how to really help people thrive, not just survive. Like I was helping people go from like the brink of suicide to coming back to life, but I was really wanting to learn how to help people go from life, you know, from surviving to thriving. And so I think what happened was in that discontent or that unsettledness, you know, I was searching and part of that, the meditation was part of that journey too. And as I went deeper and deeper into it and I went on retreats with some really just extraordinary teachers and I started to see these teachers and really see people that embodied so much of what I wanted in my life, like they were generous, they were humble, they, they were just, just yeah, like people that I would love to be like when I grow up kind of thing. Um, and and so it just, it was a bit of a, I don't know, it, it, was, it was sort of a subtle cumulative effect that just took me, if you know what I mean. And I started this project, this big project, Mindful in May, as a kind of experiment to kind of 
harness technology because this was before Facebook had like Facebook ads and all this. Facebook was like a really open platform and I saw that there was potential to use that to bring people together in community. So I brought together my passion for sort of technology, creating community, the tools that I'd been learning in mindfulness and my passion for making a social difference, so the humanitarian side of things. And I just thought, oh, I'm just going to try this out. It literally the idea for Mindful May came to me while I was sitting in meditation and um, tried that on the side while I was working in psychiatry. And then it was just this thing where I got – there was a responsiveness. There was a need in the world and it just kept growing and growing until the point where I was sort of living this double life of, you know, psychiatry training – by day and running this startup by night. And it, like, I remember there was one beginning of one year, I felt this real heaviness in my chest. I felt a bit anxious, like I, I'm, something's not feeling right. And I realized it's because I can't do these two things anymore. So it was sort of, I had to make a choice and the choice led me to what felt most alive and, and, and where I felt most passionate. So I dived into Mindful in May full time and that was it. And haven't sort of looked back. <laughs> and so when you are, uh... And this is the big, the big challenge. And I've had people on this show before who, who talk about it is that the beneficial effects of psychology or psychiatry are so limited because it is, and for years and centuries even has been a one to one thing. All right. That's right. The, the idea of being able to help someone on a psychological or even a psychiatric level at scale is the challenge that we are going to have to meet, particularly if you're talking about number one disease burden, just to give folks an idea of what like disease burden encapsulates not just, you know, how shitty it is, but loss of productivity and and effect on a a country's bottom line and GDP. And we're spending $200 billion on this. And it's, it's a big, big, big deal. So it's most definitely a a crisis. And so do, do you think that trying to influence people at scale is a part of what's behind you trying to get beyond that one on one session? Yeah, I think it's really interesting you mentioned that. I think for me there was a frustration. I firstly I want to say that the one to one is is crucial, you know, yeah. Partic- yeah, like it's crucial, but in addition to have these other ways that people can be supported that may not have the capacity financially or because they live like rurally or those kind of things. So I want to say like the one on one is so important, but I think for me um, there was something about this just drive, this pull to have a greater impact. Yeah. Mm. And, and, I, and I just, I was going to a lot of conferences in sort of, yeah, the early 2000s and I'd, I lived in New York for a year and I kind of came back all inspired by all these different ideas and communities that I'd been a part of. And, and I just really felt technology is so incredible. Like what we can do with technology to have an impact is amazing. And the fact that I was you know, just this person who was sitting in my kitchen with my computer, putting this thing together, like anyone can do that. You know, the tools were available. I didn't have funding from anywhere. Like I just started small and just pieced it together and together. And now like through Mindful May, you know, we've raised over $600,000. We've built like saved like over, I think, 15,000 lives all over Africa through these water projects that have come from this campaign. And it's like we can make a difference individually. You know, there are amazing tools at our hands that we can use now tell me a bit more about tell me a bit more about that part of things because it's it's one thing to help a person um feel better in themselves why was it important to you to put a give in in the business model i think you know that's coming back to my story and we were talking about being sort of having that immigrant story and you know I think for me, there's a really deep kind of social responsibility that that I carry, and I feel that 
I've just been lucky to fall into a country called Australia and, you know, have opportunities and have capacity to make a difference. And I, I just personally feel that it's unacceptable that one in 10 people on this planet can't access something as simple as clean, safe drinking water. Like the fact that we're living in such wealth and then like this portion of the planet is, I just, and I think that from tra- from doing the travels, from traveling in West Africa and India and some of these places, you see it with your own eyes and it's just so damn uncomfortable. I think that until you maybe confront it, they're right there and you just see this, it's, I just felt, I always felt like, I want to make a difference to this. Global poverty in particular, it was really my, my, it was what made me most angry. But I always felt like I just couldn't possibly make a difference. Like it's just too big, you know. And I sat with that feeling for a long time. And, and this kind of piece, this Mindful May piece emerged. And so that's why the giving back on one level, it's just about that's what I'm about. Like that's how I feel I can make my life the most meaningful. Like when I look back and I get to the end to know that I've actually left it a bit better and contributed to people like that, that's that's great for me. But also I think that, you know, in the terms of happiness and mental health, I think that we're becoming a society where we're so self-absorbed and I think that one of the keys to happiness is actually turning your attention outwards and actually contribution. There are research studies that show this, you know, that generosity, you know, leads to greater fulfilment. So it was also about putting these two pieces together in this campaign. So it was like, do something good for yourself and dedicate that to something greater than yourself. Um, and it, and I think it there's a sense that this also connects to when you start to meditate a lot, you do develop a greater sensitivity to the world and there is a greater sense of interconnectedness that you experience and so that naturally ripples to wanting to actually take action to alleviate suffering in the world. I wonder if that's because we're switching uh, or we're, we're just kind of allowing parts of our brain that used to be very tribal, very aware to our community because we needed a community to survive. I wonder if, like, through meditation, those parts of the brain that have allowed us as a species to thrive are going, oh, right, because you've been staring at Twitter likes or Facebook likes for the last seven hours. Uh, <laughs> we're over here where, you know, we have to take care of that person because they might need to take care of us one day, you know. Mm, Th- those, mm. sorts of, those sorts of things might not get so much attention in our brain. Yeah, I think that's completely true. I think also that at a fundamental level, we're a species that's wired to be connected. Like our lives depend on this, on this connection from a very young age. So, and I think that when we've got enough space and we just settle back into ourselves, there's almost like, I think, I think goodness is inherent in us. I'm kind of optimistic, but I, I do. I feel like goodness is inherent in human beings. And the reason why there's Bad badness is because there's trauma early in life, like things get deranged, you know, but I think the essence is goodness. And I think that when we practice something like meditation, we come back to this goodness in ourselves. And I think that that does naturally ripple outwards. I, I absolutely, I don't think we would have made, we wouldn't have made it past the Renaissance if that wasn't our default mode. We would have slayed each other like completely. To, like mm. if 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 badness if evil if if destroying another human was the thing that m- made us successful to a point that's great but at one point as 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 a 
as a species, we went, you know what? It's actually better to not be slaying each other all the time for all of us. <laughs> so yeah. at one point, we collectively decided that. And I still feel like even though shit is hitting the fan at the moment, um, it always has. It's always, yeah. It always has. And throughout history, we've always come out on on the let's try and help as many people as we can. But that's, you know, I'm feeling fairly optimistic. I've just been to the gym. I've, I've had a protein <laughs> shake. I'm, I'm firing all cylinders today, Alice. Uh, now t- tell me just to, just to go back a bit about helping, helping others. We, we talked a bit about science. Is there any, and I'm just asking this, is there any, uh, research around, um, you know, helping of others as far as your own personal happiness goes? There is definitely research. I'm forgetting the exact citation, but there's definitely research. Let me around, whip out. I can get scholar.google, but I, I think it's Stanford. <laughs> there was a study that looked at basically if people were offered, you know, a hundred dollars, a hundred dollar voucher to go and shop themselves, or they could take the hundred dollar voucher and do something that would be good for someone else. And then yeah. they looked at, you know, the impact of that, and they found that. The people that chose to do something good with that money had a longer sustained level of happiness than the people that used the hundred dollars to buy something for themselves. I can send. I can try and find the reference for that after the call. For oh, you. But no, I, I, I recall. I recall that study. But I, that, that I guess that's that's what I'm asking because that sounds like a it's a profound thing. It's a profound thing yeah. to to know that um, if you are feeling shitty in your day. Um, you know what you do? You pick up the phone and you call someone that might not be feeling, might be feeling worse than you and yeah. just say, Hey, what's up? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I, I think another interesting thing. So we've been talking about mindfulness meditation, which is more the practice of really training the mind to be more present focused and developing self-awareness. But then there's the whole other sort of realm of meditation, which are the meditations that actually cultivate positive qualities inside you. So they're love and kindness meditation, compassion meditation. So these are actually like generative meditations. And I think just to bring these up here, because when you're talking about, you know, the the, the blackness in the world and, you know, how we can sort of make our world a better place, I think the research has shown that some of these practices also lead to pro-social behavior. So and this is because you're training the mind into more generosity and, and more compassion. So th- the rewiring is happening. You're actually affecting how people behave as well. I love this stuff so much, Elise. I've got to tell you, it makes me so happy that stuff that we as humans have been doing for thousands of years is being proven to be effective. Uh, and it's not all, you know, woo-woo. It's not a bloke yeah. sitting in a cave, not eating for nine months. You know, yeah. it's, it's not Buddha boy sitting under a tree, not eating. And, you know, it's, 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 it's yeah. extraordinary. Do you think, do you think our brains are, you know, that there's this dormant part of our brain that we just, you know, meditation is a thing that goes, well, we used to do this all the time, you know, but now we kind of have to do it deliberately. Is there a part of our brains that's kind of wired for this, do you think? I'm not sure about the answer to that. Yeah. But I think that because so many of us are being pulled into sort of screens, like so many of us, I mean, for myself, like running your own your own thing and, and for you as well, like sitting in front of a computer screen like so for such prolonged periods of time, sitting in its own right, then mm. like looking at screens, I think – these things are affecting the way that our brain is changing. In fact, 
I recently interviewed Michael Merzenich, who I referred to earlier, who's actually part of the Mindful May program this year, which I'm so excited about. And he, you know, he's one of the world's top neuroscientists. And he said, you know, if you're looking at a computer screen all day, the brain is actually recalibrating and your peripheral awareness is shrinking. Like you're, you know, so you actually have to stop and like notice things more broadly so that your mind is retaining its, its kind of capacity to be aware more broadly you know he's, he's he was just sharing that our brains are being kind of very deeply affected by some of this technology and so I don't know it's not an exactly a direct answer to your question but I think that we were much better at being present and and we are living in this time that's just so much more demanding on our attention that we do need to actively invest in tools to help ourselves I, I, you know, it's it's utterly, you know, it's got no research behind it at all. But I can definitely, I definitely know that there's a change in my life from before I got my first BlackBerry to the rest of my life. Yeah. There were, I was, I could, I could tell you colors of cars of the street I just walked down. You know, I could, I could remember verbatim conversations I'd had getting a coffee. You know, now, no idea. You know, yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. like, I must have been yeah. on the street because I'm here now. I walked home, but I don't yeah. know how I got here. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And all that shit is because I'm looking at my damn phone, or even even more, just like I've I've trained my brain to be just so pin focused um, that I'm not taking in the the spatial awareness around me, and it, it drives my wife completely bonkers because my my uh, my wife's got this total situational awareness that can. You know, you could ask her, what was the number plate of the third car down the street back there? She'll go, oh, what, 777422? <laughs> like, yeah. And, yeah, it, it, it drives the nuts. Uh, so tell me, uh, people listening who are like, all right, that's it. I'm in. I'm in, Elise. I want, I want to give this shot, but uh, I've got netball training. I've got to pick up, and I've got to, then I've got to do this, and I've got to do that. And, and then, you know, I'm a celebrity. Get me out. It's 730. Got to get the kids in bed. And then 915. And I've got to be up at 6. What? How much time... Can, I know that. I know that feeling. That's yeah, my life. Yeah. Exactly. You've, you've got a family. Like, how much time in your day can you go, all right, I know if I just get this much done, that will start this journey? There are different schools of meditation and there are different schools that sort of invite or mandate you to do different amounts of meditation. My whole thing is that I'm I'm really trying to reach people that are just bloody busy and realistically don't feel that they can commit, you know, 20, 40 minutes a day. And and so really everything I've created, so Mindfully Made, the Happiness Plan, they're all targeted at people with no time. And from the research I've done, so I did a research study on Mindfully May where we looked at, we had 200 participants from the program take part to investigate how much meditation is enough for you to get the benefits. And what we found is that, so the program that I run Mindful May is inviting people to commit to 10 minutes a day for a month and they get this whole, you know, online program to support that. So we looked and the research showed that, yes, 10 minutes a day for one month is enough to actually bring benefits. And, and so some of the benefits were reported were an increase in perceiving your own stress and being able to um, respond more effectively to stress, an increase in your attention and f- ability to focus reduce negative affect or negative emotions and increase positive emotions in that period and also greater self-compassion, so greater sense of kindness to oneself. So this was not a randomized controlled trial. This is not the gold standard of trials. This was a sort of a pilot study, just to be clear. 
but it, it was definitely statistically significant and it answers the question that if you do 10 minutes a day for one month, you're going to very likely experience the benefits. So um, my idea is that invite people to commit to what's manageable and then through the benefits, let them naturally be practicing more because that's what's going to happen because it feels good and it, and it brings benefit to your life rather than telling you from up front, you've got to sit for 30, 40 minutes a day and then that's just not conducive with being a mother and running a business and this and that and then you just feel like it's all over, you can't do it and then you throw the baby out with the bathwater. So I think, you know, start small and build up. You know, you're not going to start a marathon showing up to run the marathon without doing like lots of training before. Exactly. And I, I to use your gym analogy again, never have I ever, even when I hated the fact that even when I was tra- training for marathons, never have I ever not finished a workout feeling way better than when I started. Never yeah. one time. Never one time. And I would I would say this like sometimes meditations aren't great, sometimes workouts aren't great. But you always yeah. feel like, you know what, I'm actually glad I did it. I've never regretted yeah, or, it. Yeah, or you know what, with meditation, I think the interesting thing is that you can sit and do a meditation and the whole time you're sitting can be an absolute snowstorm. Like you're not even there for one breath. You're so caught up in the busy. And then after 10 or 15 minutes, you finish the meditation and you look back, you go, that was a really bad meditation, even though there's no such thing. But um, but the benefit you've gotten is you've connected with yourself and you've actually recognized what state your own mind is in and you can actually then make more conscious decisions. I like to say that mindfulness meditation is not about creating a particular state of mind. It's becoming aware of whatever state of mind is present. And with that awareness, we, we gain greater wisdom. We gain, gain a greater ability to make better decisions in our life so that we don't end up in burnout, so that we don't, you know, keep – moving in that job that is just, you know, corroding our soul. But, you know, we, we touch base with ourselves and we slowly cumulatively can make um, decisions that lead us towards what's going to make us feel most happy. I was lucky in that, you know, I had some good teachers as, as when it came to, came to meditation. I was, I, was, I was pretty lucky and I was lucky that I'd learned through something called uh, CBT, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, oh, yeah. to question my automatic responses and i remember being a bit kind of freaked out because i was i was 26 and i'm like hang on i said this thing to this person and then the person got upset but then who am i criticizing the thing that this other version of me said when he was angry (laughs) you know it can be full on when you suddenly realize that there's the thinker and then there's the observer sorry to get Eckhart Tolle on you but it it, it can be (laughs) It, it can be confronting when you suddenly, well, hang on, who's thinking about what I was just thinking about? What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 100%. I completely agree. But I think that ultimately, and that's obviously happens when you get sort of more down the line and you become a bit more experienced in the practice and you have these discoveries. But I think ultimately, I think making these discoveries about the true nature of the mind are what frees you the most and it can be scary at first because it's unfamiliar but then all of a sudden you have this entirely new relationship with your mind where you where you realize that you know your thoughts are not the authority on the matter you know the 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 brain thinks the brain is an organ like the heart beats and you can't stop the heart from beating you can't stop the brain or the mind from thinking 
but you can shift your relationship with your thoughts. And that's from what I see, that's, that's really how I see mindfulness as being a very transformative practice. And I think it's criminal that not all human beings learn this. I think uh, you're, and you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. So the, the transformative nature of going, uh, I'm so angry right now versus there's a lot of anger going on in my head right now. It can utterly change outcomes to a situation um, and it, it can have profound effects on on entire societies, particularly ones that are embroiled in, you know, sorry, I'm going to get all weird now, but you know what I'm saying. Like it can, it can change, it can change a lot. It can. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, when you think about it as a human being, what creates the most suffering for us? I mean, there's external events, but it's our emotions, you know, our emotions are what really creates so much difficulty. And if you can learn a tool that's going to help you become more self-aware and manage your emotions more effectively, that's going to transform your family life, your work life, your relationships. You know, if you can become master of your own mind and your own emotions, that's going to transform your life. And that's really what mindfulness is about. It's, you must have had some extraordinary feedback since you started this. You must have had people write you and stuff that just made you gasp. Yeah, I mean, every year, honestly, like, the, I mean, running Mindful in May is, it's harder than being a doctor. I can tell you that now. Like, it's harder than anything I did in med school. I'm working harder behind the scenes than I ever did in the hospitals, to be honest. You know, hospitals I had like once in a while, I'd have a 24-hour on-call shift. Mindful in May, I'm like on-call all the time. Um, but what gives me the energy and the drive is every year I get, I do surveys of feedback and I just, I cry. I really cry. Like, I, I hear stories of people who have lost someone in their family and have been in like intense grief and haven't been able to leave the house because of anxiety, who actually are leaving the house, you know. Um, I, I hear from people who are carers to others who are suffering mental health issues that have found a way to just manage themselves more and have a little bit of space. There's lots of different anecdotes. There's lots of different anecdotes, but it just gives me, yeah, it really inspires me to keep doing doing what I do. How does it but how, how does it make you feel when you read that stuff? I just feel like I'm I'm living how I'm supposed to be living. Like this is what I'm meant to be doing. You know, I'm actually having an impact, and I'm putting. I think I think the key thing for all of us is to really recognize what our own unique, you know, skills, experiences, gifts, passions are, and put ourselves in a place that that can be amplified for maximum impact. And for me, in the psychiatry wards because of my own whatever, like my own sensitivity, I couldn't make the most difference there. And so I've found a way that I can do that now and that feels really good. You're, uh, you're only a couple of weeks out from, from the launch for 2018. <laughs> What's life like for you at the moment? It is intense and I have to say, you know, thank God I have some of these skills because if I didn't, I would be a complete mess. I also want to say something just, you know, because I would hate your listeners to think that I've got it all together and, you know, I never lose it and all of that kind of stuff. And I want to say that, you know, one year, this is maybe an ending story, one year, um, mindfully, mate, it grew so much and I was so new at this whole startup thing. It took me and it completely flattened me. It did. And at the end of it, it spat me out and I was completely burnt out and I felt a huge amount of shame because I thought, oh, my God, like, I'm running a bloody meditation campaign and I've just been spat out the end of it and I'm burnt out. What is that? Because integrity and walking the talk is really important to me. And um, But the fact of the matter is I was meditating during that time. The point I want to make is that, you know, meditation and mindfulness is really powerful, but you can't just tack it on 
to your crazy life and expect that it's going to neutralize and solve everything. You you need to also be looking at how you design your life. So, you know, I, I guess my point is that meditation is not going to be able to um, completely completely save you from the effects of chronic stress if they're so high. So for me, that was a huge lesson in, you know, just how to run a business and there was lots of lessons in that. And um, so the following year I kind of, you know, reflected on what was going on, realized I needed more support and put some things in place so that didn't happen again. Well, that, that I'm grateful you shared that. I'm I'm really great. I'm grateful you share that because I mean a lot of the we do live in a life of only ever seeing the greatest hits. You know, we live in a life yeah. where we we only ever see the trailers. People never put the the horrible argument they had with their their partner on Facebook. Yeah. They only ever put the hey, how awesome is that? We're on holidays. They only ever put yeah. that photo. But that's not life. Life does that's have right. you know give that's you uh, right. You have an unreasonable expectation of, of life. If you're suddenly having an argument with someone you're really into, you're like, this isn't supposed to happen. It's supposed to be Instagram likes and love. What's going on? Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, I think that for me, one of the things that mindfulness has really given me in my life is a much bigger dose of self-compassion and an understanding that we're all imperfect as humans and you just have to forgive yourself. And, and that's been really liberating for me as well to be able to move through the world and just kind of when things stuff up or I stuff up or, you know, I respond to my partner in a way that I feel ashamed of and that's like my lower self or I don't have enough patience with my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, like you just you kind of forgive yourself. You go, you know what, I'm not a perfect person. I'm doing the best I can and the best I can do is just come back, give myself self-compassion and try better next time. So, yeah, and that's really, you know, in my book, The Happiness Plan, I really bring a lot of my story into it because I want I want to share that and I, I, I want to sort of show that, you know, mindfulness is really powerful. It's, it has been transformative in my life, but it doesn't erase the fact that you're a human being that's going to have difficult emotions still. It just gives you more tools to manage these challenges that we all face as humans. I'm so grateful you had the time to talk to me today, Elise. Yeah, it's been great fun. Lovely to chat with you. I've really enjoyed it. That was Dr. Elise Bailu. You can find out more about her, mindfulinmay.org. I think they open registrations in a couple of days. And, yeah, it's a fantastic program by the looks of things. It looks really great. If it's for you, how about you? Go for it. It's not the only mindfulness practice out there, but I hope you heard enough in here to maybe consider that there might be something you may explore to help you with your day. Uh, I've got to thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you for listening. And thank you for all the emails. I, I do write back to everybody that writes, send Osher email at gmail.com. Thank you so much. I, I know we've been talking about some heavy mindfulness shit, but look, there is one thing I did want to talk to you about. Um, the Logies are coming up. I've been in telly 20 years. I've held a couple for, you know, accepting on behalf of a show that I'm one part of, but never had my own. Never had my own. If you feel like it, if you want to vote, O-S-H-E-R dot I-S. Osher is slash Logies. L-O-G-I-E-S. Osher is slash Logies. Osher dot is slash Logies. If you felt like it. If you don't, don't worry about it. Just go to mindfulinmay.org or wherever else you want to find some mindfulness vibes and, and get on that action. But if you felt like throwing a click, couple of clicks my way, I'd, I'd appreciate it. Hey, big thanks to everyone that helped me make this show today. It's not just me. It's a team, a fantastic team. Andy Ma, my audio producer, the great and powerful 
is making this sound fantastic to your ear holes. Haley Van Spanier is the one that made everyone get in the same place at the same time to have the conversation. And Toehider made the music because he's great. And this podcast does not exist without you because a podcast, like many other things in this universe, doesn't exist until it's observed. Ooh. Does a podcast unlistened to still exist? Hmm. No. Uh, you made this show this show. That's someone at my front door, so it's probably a good time that I go. Until we speak next time, thank you for listening. Talk to you next Monday. Sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.